Great to see you this morning, and uh, terrific to be with you. Obviously, I'm injured. An average guy would be at home in bed, but no, I'm here. I don't know. I wish I had a story. The obvious question is, what happened? I have no idea. Went to the doctor. My foot hurt, and I have a stress fracture and a torn tendon. So you would think, I mean, it sounds athletic. He said, how would you do this? And I said, you know, we have remote control, and uh, I don't know how I did this. So it's a great excuse to wear shorts. The problem with shorts is I'm very comfortable, but you have to look at this very bad leg. I know how bad it looks, but that's just part of the deal, and I apologize for it. But I'm comfortable, so we're happy with that. I... uh, text Luke last night and told him, uh, reminded him that I was teaching today and that everybody would be even more excited after today to have him back. So he and Molly and the girls are doing great and uh, he's doing exactly what he should be, uh, rejuvenating and studying, reading, having a great time. So you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 7. Nikki just read the passage uh, Mark, and, and it occurs to me, we, we've been in the gospel of Mark for some time now at all the redemption congregations. I've taught, I don't know, a couple of them. And, and I just want to remind you, because uh, we do this when we do the introduction to a book, and sometimes never get back to it or forget it, but Mark is one of the synoptic gospels along with Matthew and Luke, uh, one author writes this, it would be possible to argue that of all of them, Mark is the most important. It would indeed be possible to go further and to argue that it is the most important book in the world. So Mark was written by... <laughs> Just as sharp as I remember you. Uh, Mark is written by Mark. And uh, his mom, we meet before we meet him, in Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter is in prison, and there's this uh, miraculous releasing and deliverance. And in Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter runs to Mark's mom's house, where the church gathered. Uh, Mark really breaks on the scene for us in the book of Acts, where Paul and Barnabas head out on their first missionary journey. And uh, Barnabas is an uncle to Mark, and he says, can we take Mark? They do. Somewhere in that journey, for a reason we don't know, Mark splits. And when they go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take Mark with him again. Paul says no. The two of them explode in this relationship. Paul heads off with Silas. Mark heads off with Barnabas. Then for some years, Mark disappears. A tradition says that he went to Egypt and found a church in Alexandria, so a church plant. Uh, We don't know that tradition. We don't know that for sure. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul's writing from prison and says to the church at Colossae, Mark is with me. And then there's that wonderful scene in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul's at the end of his life and writing to Timothy And he says, please come quickly. Only Luke is with me. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And pick up Mark, for he is a useful servant. And that's this Mark. 
Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 5.13 uh, refers to my son Mark, probably like Paul called Timothy his son. So there's a very special relationship here. Uh, Mark gives us details that some of the other gospel writers don't give. Uh, Mark emphasizes both the deity and the humanity of Christ. It's the earliest of the gospels, very, very important. And the chapter we have before us today, uh, Mark chapter 7, one of the scholars writes this. It's a very, very definite portion of scripture. You might even conclude that of all the teaching places in the gospel, this has to rank as one of the most important because it's so defining. I don't know if you caught that as Nikki was reading it. Uh, I, here, here's the way I prepare a lesson. I read it, usually in the New American Standard first, and then I'll read two, three, four other translations and a couple of paraphrases. In my first reading, I, I just kind of underline things or mark things, uh, put a box around them, draw lines, whatever it is. It just is thoughts that I get by the first reading. Then when I'm done with uh, those and the paraphrases, I'll make some notes. Uh, then I'll read commentaries. Then I try to pull it together. And when I was standing over there listening to Nikki read, I heard that phrase. You see it there. And, and if you're a marker, underliner, if you're working with an app, maybe it's a yellow. I don't know how you get it on there. But, but you might put a little box around the phrase in verse 3, traditions of the elders. And then I just draw a line down to verse 5, where it is again, tradition of the elders. And verse 8, tradition of men. Verse 13, traditions. And, and so I have, what is it, one, two, three, four boxes, and I have a line down there. And, and you get a sense here that tradition, in this case, tradition of men, condition of the elders, very, very important. They're at the heart of this. And what you have is a scene that is absolutely impossible for me to accurately convey really the tension of this. You see in verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Jesus when they had come from Jerusalem. Uh, the scribes were a group of men who studied and interpreted and taught and recorded the teaching or the law from generation to generation and the teaching of the rabbis. And some of these scribes were also Pharisees. The Pharisees were the separatists. The Pharisees were the ones who tried to live the law. And this group, in various places, for example, in Scripture, you'll see the Jews came. You'll see a large case J. And they're speaking of generally a group like this, scribes, Sadducees, Pharisees. And they are the arch enemy of Jesus. He wants Jesus, and, and in his life, as you read through, he gets along, it seems like, basically with everybody, except the scribes and the Pharisees. They hated him. Uh, they hated him because he claimed to be God. Uh, they hated him because he associated with the publicans and the sinners. 
They hated the popularity he was developing among the people. He was the opposite of them. And at the core of this is the very issue we have before us, the traditions of men. These scribes had been gathered together and given the assignment to go from Jerusalem, the pinnacle, the apex of the Jewish leaders and the intimate thoughts of the day, and to go and to confront Jesus. There's a a phrase, a head-on collision. And the collision surfaces right away. You see it in verse 2. They had seen some of his disciples that they're eating with impure hands. They were unwashed. Now, this is very important. Here's the issue that they have with Jesus. It's not an issue of hygiene. It's not a wash your hands, you need to be clean. It's a ceremonial cleaning. In the Mishnah, one author has said, what they try to do is take tradition and fence in the law. What does the law mean? Here's what you've heard. Here's what's written. And so it begins to try to take a law and then say, how does that shake itself out? So take something like you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. So the Mishnah would come along and say, you shouldn't look into a mirror. Because if you look into a mirror, you might see a gray hair. Okay. And if you did, you'd be tempted to pluck it, and that would be working on the Sabbath. Uh, you couldn't carry a handkerchief from upstairs to downstairs, but you could wear one. So if you put it on and wore it downstairs, that's how you would transport it. You, you could only travel a certain distance on the Sabbath from your home, but you could declare wherever there was a, a, a particle, an article, something that you owned, you could declare that to be your home, so somebody would go ahead and they'd put those places out there, and you could still travel great distances by declaring that in each of these places you'd gone all this way and never left home. Okay. Well, the issue, yeah, and, we, and you laugh at it because it's silly, and that's what had happened, and that's it, the traditions of men, and, and they come, and they are concerned, and here's the issue, verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, observing the tradition of the elders. And when they'd come from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they cleansed themselves. And there were many other things which they received in order to observe as such as washing of cups and pitchers and pots. The Mishnah had 12 chapters dedicated, explaining, amplifying the whole idea of ceremonial cleaning. What to clean, how to clean, when to clean it. The process, how to wash your hands, not just wash them, but with a certain amount of water, let it dip down and drip down to the tip of your fingers, and then all sorts of elaborate things. And when you went out onto public, you inevitably encountered an unclean Gentile, and then you would have to wash. So there are these elaborate rituals. And they're on a collision course. You see it in verse 5, because they said to him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? 
but they eat bread with impure hands, meaning they didn't do the ceremonial washing. So there you go. There's the issue. The fight is on. And Jesus does not back away. Jesus said, you know what? You religious guys, uh, you remind me of an Old Testament passage from Isaiah. In fact, I think he was thinking about you when he wrote this, you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrine the precepts of man. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of man. You are, Jesus said, you want to talk about charges? You want to make accusations to me? Let me bring one back at you. You're a hypocrite. One who would wear a mask. You would pretend to be something that you aren't. One author, John MacArthur, suggests that the key verse in this whole passage to understand the incident is verse 7, in vain do they worship me. You're very religious people. That's what I want you to get. They're the religious people of the day. They're the people that stood back and went, wow. You can see their religion. It's all around them. After Jesus makes this accusation, he said, let me give you an illustration. Verse 9, you're experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your own traditions. Here's one of them. Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother should be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say it's given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, Thus, consequently, you've invalidated the word of God by your traditions which you hand down. Corbin was to declare something dedicated, set aside, a vow to God. So here's what they were doing. These guys who were washing their hands and keeping the tradition of man. Here were their parents in need. What they had that would help them, they declared Corbin, set aside for God. All they had to do was declare it as that. They still could use it for whatever they wanted. Thus, they circumvented the very truth of honoring their father and their mother. They kept it for themselves. They set it aside. Here you go. I wrote the word loophole. They found a loophole. I'm going to be able to keep myself. And in fact, I could even hear him go, Mom, Dad, you should be so proud of me. Look how religious I am. I'm doing what you've taught me. Didn't work out so well for you, but I'm doing what, what you taught me. Verse 14, and after he, he called the crowd to him, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a man that can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of a man, that's what defiles him. So there's the principle. It's not what's out there that comes in there, but what's in me already that defiles me. Verse 17, they left. The disciples said, what, what? Tell us about it. Verse 18, he said, are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside can't defile him? It goes in, doesn't go into his heart. It goes into his stomach. Thus, he's dealing away with all of the dietary restrictions that they've had for decades and decades and decades. 
He's saying, that which proceeds out of a man, that's which defiles man. For within a man, out of his heart, proceed, and there's a, there's a grouping here of 12 things. The first six are in the, in the uh, Greek, in the, in the plural, so they're acts. The second six are motivations. Those first six are evil thoughts and fornication and thieves and murder and adultery. And then deeds of covetousness, of wickedness, and deceit, and sensuality, and evil, and slander, and pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within, and they are what defile a man. You get the text? Here's what's going on. Here's the scene. I want you to see the big picture, and then what possible difference does this make to us? They're saying we're clean from the outside, and Jesus is saying the problem is not the outside. The problem is your heart. You have evil thoughts and evil actions. You covet. You lust. You're jealous. You, you have problem upon problem upon problem. And Jesus said the real issue is in your heart. Here's the difference it makes to us. Here's the application to you and me. And it's been true all through time. The problem in our life is, and challenge is not to become religious, but to come into a relationship with Christ, with God. The problem is not to go to church and not to be religious. Those, that's our natural instinct. Our challenge is an internal heart change. I don't know if we remembered, if we talked about it the last time I was here. But once you come to a realization that there is a problem and something wrong in your life, you have four ways you can approach it. So you get, let's, here you go, let's go. Let's pretend we're at summer camp. Look up here. Okay? We're going we're gonna to close this down. We're going to narrow it down to you. You look around and you go, there's something wrong in the world. Turkey's a mess. Well, then you go, well, the country's a mess. And then you go, well, Arizona's a mess. And then you go, well, Mesa Queen Creek is a mess. My neighborhood's a mess. My house is a mess. My family's a mess. Oh, my gosh, I'm a mess. Something's wrong. So you can do this. You can kind of dismiss it. Well, that's just the way it is. It's really not that bad. It's no big deal. More likely, you, you begin to internalize it and say, something has to happen here. And you can see that things are bad, and you can just give up. That happened to me. My sophomore year of college, my theology was this. To go to heaven, I had to do more good than bad. More bad than good, I went to hell. And by my sophomore year of college, my bad stack was so high that I figured I'm never going to catch up, so let's just see how high we can get this stack. I just gave up. What typically happens is the third response. It's the response of the Pharisees and the scribes, and my guess would be the response of some of you today. I'm going to clean up my act and fix it. I'm going to get religious. Uh, I'm going to start going to church. As Josh was talking about uh, uh, Greg's life, he was saying he had been in church, 
but hadn't been saved, hadn't been delivered. Uh, Sandy and I had dinner with a couple the other night, and one of the things I like to ask is, well, how did you guys meet? And then whenever there's a big smile, there's always a great story. And so there was this big smile, and she started to share this story, and they were working in the same restaurant, and she was intrigued by him in that on his break, he would go and study the Bible. And she'd been to church all her life, And she was intrigued by that, didn't want to do that, but thought maybe it would be good to have a guy that did, and they began to date, and they began to go to church, and then they got involved in something called evangelism explosion. Some of you that have been around church for a while would remember evangelism explosion. It was a class you took so that you could go out and knock on doors in the neighborhood, and be the vehicle God would use to bring people to Christ. In the course of evangelism explosion, as she's preparing to go and to share the gospel with people, she led herself to Christ. (laughs) That's a great story. She realized, "I, I don't, I haven't done this. I haven't responded this way. See, that's religion. God hates religion. Religion is man-made. It's anything other than biblical Christianity. It's at the very essence of the issue of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be saved, to be delivered. Because our fundamental problem is, as Jesus say, is internal. It's in our heart. God looks at the heart for Samuel 16:7. Man looks at the outside. Proverbs 4, guard your heart and guard what comes out of your heart, for they are the issues of life. Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Romans chapter 3. If you've been around Uh, here, I'm going to guess, for any length of time, you've heard this, but let me remind you, Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, not one, none who understands, none who seeks after God. All have turned away. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the condition of every man. It's not external, it's internal. It's my heart. I've sinned, I've walked away from God. And even when I come to grips with that, my human flinch is to fix it. So you could be here today and be in the position, one of those scribes and Pharisees. I love when I'm at Gateway to look around and see all those kids' shirts. I love it. I think I make the same comment every time I'm here. I'm so grateful, and we're so grateful for you, because we couldn't pull off a Sunday without you. And there are kids that are sitting there right now, which is hard to imagine, that are someday, decades from now, going to come back to you, and they're going to say, you know, I, I, I don't know if you remember, but you taught that lesson. So you could be here and be involved in kids' ministry, and on your way out, getting ready to drop some money in the box, and you're involved this week in a small group, and you could be like the Pharisees, ceremonially washing your hand, but your heart has never been changed. 
my fundamental problem, and your fundamental problem is a heart problem. And what saves us is a relationship with Christ. He, he didn't come to put a bunch of rules on you and restrictions on you. What makes you a Christian is not how you behave, but what you believe. Ooh, got that? What makes me a Christian is not how I behave, but what I believe. I believe that I'm a sinner separated from God. And there's nothing I can do to fix it, though I will try. We're almost incurably religious. I'll try to fix it. I'll read this book, listen to this tape, go to this study, go to this conference. I'll start to read the Bible. I get to Leviticus. I quit. That's all right because I'm going to start again next year. Okay? And I'm going to get to Leviticus and quit again. So here's a tip. Start beyond Leviticus. Okay? <laughs> but, but I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it. And somehow it's going to make me acceptable to God. What makes us acceptable to God is when we repent, when we turn from that human effort and trust him and his provision, which is Jesus. I'm uh, on a little bit of a kick lately. I'm always on a kick. But I'm on a little bit of a kick lately for the book of Titus. It seems like we don't go there very often. And it's got these rich statements but we go to Ephesians and Romans and kind of get them there. But Titus chapter 3, Paul writes this. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which were done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing, regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. What solves the problem in my heart is Jesus. You must be, as Jesus said, Born again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new heart. That, that's the, the beautiful story. That was Paul's story. Turn, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Philippians. I don't have a page number for you, or I'd give it. Go to Mark and head to the right. I can tell you that. Okay. And I don't think we talked about this first hour, so you get a little bonus here. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul was one of these Pharisees. And he said, here's my resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, Paul didn't have anything to do with that. He's saying, I came from a religious family, from the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a heresy, or a heresy, <laughs> a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, I didn't just say, let's get those Christians, I persecuted them. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I count for loss for the sake of Christ and knowing him. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, the King James says dung, for the sake of gaining Christ. Here's what Paul said. I did that Pharisee religious thing, and I didn't play at it. 
I was as serious about that as I am about this Christian faith, but I can tell you those are of no value apart from Christ. So let me be really clear here. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying to you, quit coming to church, quit working in kids' ministry, quit giving, quit going to small. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying your motivation for doing that is not to please God and find favor and salvation with him, but as a result of him already loving you. These are freeing words to a religious person. And, and, and really, they're shattering too. When, whenever I teach about grace, I get a pushback from a lot of the Bible people. And I'm a Bible person. But whenever you talk about grace, everybody starts to get nervous that somehow you're moving away. No, 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 not at all. I'm saying I'm not on probation with God. Right? Isn't, I mean, isn't that true? Isn't my salvation secure? How can you sit here and say, Greg, who passed away this week is in heaven? Well, the only way you can say that is because God said, if you believe in me, you'll go to heaven. He believed in him, and I can't undo that relationship. I'm not on probation with God. God's accepted me. I'm his kid. I've been saying this lately, and, and the first time I said it, I thought, I don't think that sounds right. But, but then I figured I'd just keep saying it until, it until it sounds right. God stuck with me. He picked me. He knew everything I was ever going to say or do or think, everything I'd already said or thought or done, and he said, you're my kid. So I go through these not in order to gain acceptance by him. I'm already accepted by him. But because I know him, I love him, and if you love him, you want to obey him, and the more you obey him, the more you love him. And it starts this whole cycle. They've got it backwards. It's a sad place to be a religious person. Usually not much joy. When I first became a Christian in 1980, and this sounds, I couldn't believe it then, but it really sounds nutty now. There were churches where they didn't, they didn't play pinball machines and, and they didn't play cards, and they didn't go to movies, and they didn't dance, and, and they didn't do anything that remotely related to fun. And that was their evidence that God was on their side. Now, if God convicts you to not play pinball, don't play pinball. Huh? Easier for the rest of us, an open game, Okay. <laughs> I, I don't care, but do you see what I'm saying? That, that's the, we, we got to stop, we're on time. That, that's the issue that's before him. That, this dramatic scene in Mark 7 has been played out every day since and has been playing out today. God is not interested in you going through the motions and sitting at the end of this and declaring that somehow you're more acceptable to God. You're as lost as you were. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. There's nothing you can do to change that. What you need is life, and life is in Jesus and him alone. Have you come to that point yet? 
Have you, have you come to that point where you acknowledge that your sin has separated you from Christ? That's what's wrong with you. Okay? If you're that person, that's what's wrong with you. It's not that you aren't religious enough. It's not that you don't read your Bible enough. It's not that you don't pray enough. It's that your sin is separated from, your, from God and you need a new heart. And that comes only through Christ. And it's as simple as you repenting, giving up, turning, acknowledging your sin, and coming to him in repentance and faith. Now I begin to live a life that reflects that. See that? Pick up right there next week. Father, thank you for this truth as we come to a time of communion, come to a time when those of us who know your son Jesus come in repentance and faith. We celebrate, we commemorate Jesus' death on a cross. Not in some gruesome way, but in an incredible act of love. God, thank you for the men and women students here today who aren't trying to earn acceptance from you, but are living in a way that demonstrates that they have it. God, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.